You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, happy Poetry Day. Uh, so, uh, my name is Philip Coleman. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you all here to, the Trinity, to Trinity's Humanities Research Institute, the Long Room Hub, for the 2018 Joan Roth and William M. Roth Lecture, which will be given this evening by Erica Van Horn. Uh, founded in 2006, the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute is dedicated to advancing TCE's rich tradition of research excellence in the arts and humanities on an individual, collaborative, and interdisciplinary basis. Now, before I introduce Erica, I just want to give a special welcome to Joan, to Joan Roth, and all the members of the Roth family who have travelled uh, to be with us uh, this evening. It's a long way to Tipperary, <laughs> right? Uh, but it really is an honour for us to have you here Joe and Brendan, and of course it's also great to welcome back Brendan in particular, he's a graduate of the college. Uh, Brendan will say a few words on behalf of the Roth family after Erica's uh, talk. The Joan Roth and William M. Roth Lecture Series was established in 2017 when the inaugural lecture was given in the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance at the University of Limerick by Dr. Edward McPartland, also of this parish. Uh, Dr. Niamh Nagawan and I set up the series after a chat we had uh, in the summer of 2016, I think it was, with Simon Cutts, uh, over lunch one afternoon in Valley Bay, uh, Tipperary. Uh, Simon asked me if I had ever come across Bill Roth. Now, I grew up in the town of Care in Tipperary. My mother's family come from uh, Clockabrida, only a few miles away from where Bill and Joan set up a home in Hymanstown, New Inn. Uh, but I never actually met Bill or Joan during the years I spent knocking around that beautiful part of the world. I was aware, though, that the Roth family had made, ma had made many significant contributions to the cultural and artistic life of the region. In my own hometown of Care, uh, the Roths were centrally involved in the restoration of the uh, Swiss cottage on the banks of the River Shore uh, in the 1980s. Uh, they were also involved in the restoration of the Bolton Library in Cashel. Uh, more recently, when the library in Clonmel was celebrating Lawrence Stern's tercentenary, uh, William and Joan donated a first edition of Tristram Shandy to the, the local library in Clonmel. The family were also involved in setting up the Kilkenny Design Workshops, the Irish Georgian Society, the Wexford Opera Festival, and here in Trinity College they were involved in the setting up of the Douglas Hyde Gallery. And I'm delighted that Georgina Jackson, the current uh, director of the gallery, is here this evening also. So for all of these reasons, um, and many more, uh, Niamh Nigawan and I, prompted by our conversation with Simon, we felt that we should and perhaps could do something to acknowledge the Roth family's remarkably generous contributions to Irish cultural life over many decades, spanning many areas of the arts, including music, design, painting, architecture, and literature. Literature, in a way, was William Roth's first love. Um, in 1939, when he was only 23 years of age, he wrote and published one of the first, uh, what became one of the first bibliographies of W.B. Yeats's work, uh, based on an exhibition he curated at the Yale University Library. Around the same time, 
he set up a coat press, uh, one of the most important presses in the history of 20th century American literature with uh, Jane Grabhorn. Uh, that press, Cold Press, published the work of Robert Duncan, for example, a major 20th century American poet, as well as works by Henry Miller, Edmund Wilson, Janet Lewis, and this is one of my favorites, a book of three evening prayers by Jane Austen. Really wonderful um, uh, press. Uh, William Roth was also a writer, um, and in 2015, Bradshaw Books published his, his novel, uh, Birdsong, which has since been reissued in this beautiful edition uh, by, by Coracle. Uh, just to give you a sense of what it looks like in the real, as it were, here it is. Really beautiful book. Based in South Tipperary since 1996, and directed by poet, editor, and artist Simon Cutts, and writer and artist, and many other things, Eric Van Horn, Coracle Books has published some of the most interesting poets now working in the English language, including Susan Howe and Morris Scully. It would be misleading to say that Coracle is a poetry publisher as such, however, because each, each um, of the books they publish presents some kind of challenge uh, to the way we think of the relationship between the visual work on the one hand and the printed word on the other. Coracle's books in themselves are remarkably complete, organically whole works of art that play with language, form, and materiality in ways that challenge the conventional sense of the book as something merely there to be read. From postcards to short, pamphlet-length books to longer works, Coracle is, I think, perhaps the most innovative publisher working in Ireland today. And the work of the press, in fact, has been celebrated in shows at the Yale Centre for British Art in London and the uh, Irish Museum of Modern Art here in Dublin. And I hope at some point in the near future there might be an exhibition of Coracle works maybe in the long room uh, here in Trinity, which would be really wonderful to see happen. Now, as I mentioned, Erica Van Horn is uh, co-director of Coracle Press, and she will give this evening's lecture. Erica is a writer, editor, artist, poet, and printmaker. She has published over 100 works, many of which were included in a show entitled The Book Remembers Everything, the work of Erica Van Horn, which was shown at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale in 2010. Um, and there's now actually a, an archive of her books and papers uh, there. Among her most recent publications is Living Locally, which was published by Uniform Books in 2011 and reissued in 2014. Living Locally is a wonderful book. It's been described by Susan Howe as a meticulous field guide of what it means to be an American discovering the embedded, entangled mysteries of being Irish. Another commentator has said that it is a book in which Erica Van Horn makes remarkable what might otherwise have gone unrecorded, the familiarity of neighbours, of animals and of weather, the regularity of the patterns of transaction on roads and in nearby villages and towns, and from an outsider's perspective, the unfamiliarity of speech and custom. I should also mention that this remarkable book, uh, Living Locally, is currently being taught uh, by my colleague, Dr. Julie Bates, on one of her undergraduate modules here in the School of English, in Trinity, and I know that it's been hugely popular among our students. I don't know if you were aware of that until just now. <laughs> that will explain the, the sudden rush of orders in January. <laughs> but in any case, given the, the significance and originality of Erica Van Horn's contributions to many areas, including poetry, the visual arts, editing, and book design, it is entirely fitting that Erica Van Horn should deliver this year's Joan Roth and William M. Roth lecture. So please join me in giving. 
Erica, a very warm Trinity College Dublin welcome here this evening. Conception. <laughs> we are constantly adapting. Bill and Joan have stayed in Tipperary for over 40 years. They've had to go away and to return again and again and again, because each time they returned, everything was new and everything was the same. For myself, I live in a small community where I'm always trying to find my place. My Living Locally series, which is, is partly there, uh, from which I'm about to read, became my way of explaining my growing familiarity of the world in which I'm living. A world in which it appears that not much happens. I think of myself as a little reporter collecting observations, words, and weather. I think of myself as someone who gathers up the unremarkable so that it does not pass unnoticed. In 2007, I began an online journal, which was a way to share my daily explorations with a larger audience. I am an outsider, and I shall remain an outsider, but increasingly, I feel myself a little more inside than out. I may still say call instead of ring when I want to reach someone by telephone, but people understand that. Everyone is better traveled now. Meeting a stranger from another village or county or country is no longer an exhilarating, newsworthy form of travel for rural people, rural dwellers. In our near village, there's a man from Cornwall and a woman from Mexico. There are a few Lithuanian and Polish people, a man from Monaghan, and even a few Dubliners. Everyone is everywhere. Differences are blurry. Mm, yeah. 
Joan's father, Fairfield Osborne, I think it was Fairfield Osborne Jr., was an early and influential environmentalist in the United States. His 1948 book, Our Plundered Planet, remains an important document about the unforgivable damage that human beings have been doing to the earth. Sorry about that. An enormous part of Joan's love of Ireland has been her love of nature. She has lived her father's teachings. The extensive planting of trees and, and nurturing of wildlife are as important part of the Roth legacy as are the contributions to the arts. Joan knows her trees and her plants. She knows birds and their habitats and sounds intimately. One day she told me that I am not a very scientific person. I had not thought of myself quite like that, but she is right. I can watch the same birds for months on end and never bother to remember what they are. But that is okay. In, preparing, in beginning to prepare for this reading, I tried to include a few of my bird texts for Joan. They demonstrate that I have learned very little about birds, <laughs> but that I do pay attention in my own way. So I will start out with a bird. Okay. So this is the time of the year for the return of the swallows. Everyone is on the alert to see the first swallow. There are discussions as to where and when a swallow has been seen. Brida saw one the other day. This is the first sighting I have heard of. She saw a swallow on the third. She checked her calendar and saw that last year she saw the first swallow on the eighth. She is delighted with herself. She is delighted with the swallow. I have yet to see a swallow myself. I am so bad at recognizing birds that I will probably see one and not be certain of it. It is always best for me if I am with someone else who can be trusted to know. There is always the first something to see, the first snowdrop, the first primrose, the first daffodil, bluebell, crocus, or apple blossom. There is always a first something to anticipate and to celebrate, but nothing excites quite so much as the first swallow. These, I'm just reading all these disconnected pieces, so you just have to go along with me. <laughs> I had another call from the station master at Waterford Railway Station. We have not spoken for some weeks now. He said, hello, Erica. I understand you've been ringing me again. I said, oh, really, did I? And what did I say? <laughs> we both laughed, and he expressed his regret that it had not been himself who had answered the phone this time. Some months ago, a woman rang to complain about the road being closed at the level crossing for an excessively long time, just in the morning when she was driving to work. Of course, that was exactly when the train needed to go by, too. The station master assured her that the road was never closed for a minute longer than was necessary. The second time she rang, she left her name and number. When he rang back, he got me. He knew immediately that he had a different woman on the line. My voice was a dead giveaway. I was obviously not the woman with a strong temporary accent. I did not even know which level crossing was being discussed. The same woman phones and complains on a regular basis, and she always claims to be me. <laughs> the station master 
marvels that she does not try to find an alternative route for driving to work. <laughs> he always rings to tell me when I have phone. <laughs> I am often using the word doctor when I should be using the word mister. I always call a dentist doctor, but a dentist is not a doctor. A dentist is never a doctor. A dentist is a mister. Some doctors are called doctor, and some are called mister. The surgeon is a mister, but the general practitioner is a doctor. I am better at using the right form of address than I used to be, but I continue to get it wrong more often than I would like. Some of these people do not mind, but some get very, very upset, and they correct me immediately. These people say, I am not a doctor, I am a mister. <laughs> they correct me so quickly that it, as if, it is as if they fear someone will overhear them accepting a title which is not rightly theirs to have. I have never really found out definitively who is who and when who is who. And because everyone here is quickly on first name basis, the medical person very often becomes someone with a name rather than a title. In the case of my first GP, the doctor and her husband shared a practice. Since they were both Dr. Perry, she was Dr. Rosaline, and he was Dr. John. But now Dr. Rosaline and Dr. John have retired. A group of new doctors have taken over their practice. There are two doctors among them named Kelly. These two Dr. Kellys are not married. <coughs> to differentiate between them, the woman doctor is referred to as Dr. Maria Kelly, and the male doctor is Dr. Kelly. <laughs> and we call our dentist Daniel. <laughs> I am not very good about offering tea. Local ritual dictates that you offer tea, and the person being offered the tea says no. Then you wait a little longer, and you offer again. Again, the person being offered the tea says no. The third time tea is offered, the person being offered the tea says yes. <laughs> this goes for anything being offered, not just tea. I get annoyed with having to play this game. I tend to believe people when they say no. <laughs> Sometimes I announce that I just make the offer only once, so they should say yes if they <laughs> If people know me, they understand that they can say yes immediately people I do not know very well are the ones for whom I sometimes feel I should play the game. Even children are conditioned to participate in this ritual. It is a form of politeness. People can go away hurt or hungry if they are not given the correct number of times to say no before saying yes. fell down the chimney. They were young. They had no feathers yet. They were naked except for a tiny, tiny bit of fluff. No one was near the chimney when they fell. Gavin found them because he and another lad were in and out of the bar, painting the loops. It was early in the day, and there was no one else around. Gavin showed the birds to Rose. They were still alive, so she put them into an open cardboard box with an old tea towel. Then the inspection woman made a surprise visit. She came in shortly after the birds got settled into their box. 
Rose quickly put the box out in the small room that people walked through to go to the outdoor smoking area. She assumed that the inspection woman would not go that far. The woman was busy looking everywhere for any breaches in health and safety. She reprimanded Rose for having an old and barely visible sticker for silver cut cigarettes on the underneath of the hinged bar hatch. No one ever sees the silk cut sticker, except when Rose opens the hatch to go in or out from behind the bar to clear a table. The sticker has been coated over with varnish and old smoke for years and years. It is barely visible. It is impossible to see where the sticker ends and where the wood it is stuck onto begins. The inspection woman said that the sticker violates a law about openly advertising cigarettes. She made notes about a few other things, and then she walked out the back door to go to the smoking area. She squealed when she saw the two little jackdaws in the box. She asked no questions. She just said, get them out, <laughs> in her loud and imperative inspection woman voice. She continued on with her examination. The birds were not mentioned again. Rose wonders if they will be noted in the letter with its inevitable list, which the woman will be sending out later in the week. I made the mistake of rushing down to the village to buy a lemon. I thought I could get there and leave quickly before everyone came out of mass. <laughs> I was too late. The road was full of people leaving the church and talking to one another. The sun was out. No one was in a hurry. The shop was full of chattering people. I found the only lemon available, and I waited my turn, and I bought it. I left the shop with the lemon in my hand. I passed Brendan sitting on the ledge. I had passed him on the way in, too. He shouted, oh, a lemon. You'll be having a whiskey, then. <laughs> I said, Brendan, there's more than one thing to do with a lemon, and anyway, it's kind of early in the day for whiskey, isn't it? He said, whiskey, whiskey is the only place I have ever had a lemon. He said, I like a hot whiskey with lemon. I was in a hurry, so I did not stop to discuss the many other possibilities of a lemon. Brendan is a talented musician. He is good with the spoons and with the mouth harp, but he cannot read and he cannot write. He cannot do any numbers. I decided that what he did not know about lemons was just another thing he did not know. <laughs> and what he did not know did not bother him. I just cleared a blue tit off the step. The blue tits are everywhere. They are flying in wild sweeps all over the place. The weather is confusing, so maybe they think it is springtime in between these very cold nights and the heavy rain. Three times this week, I picked up birds who had flown into windows and knocked themselves out. I picked them up gently and placed each one in a sheltered spot under some leafy boughs or on top of a mossy rock. When I checked later, they were gone. They had simply been stunned by smashing themselves into glass at speed. The one I gathered up today was dead. There was no soft heartbeat to be felt and its neck was bent at an impossible angle. The salute is a small part of everyday life. It is a small part of everyday life, but it is an important part. 
I'm driving up and down the same roads day after day. We all see the same people and the same vehicles. It is imperative that we acknowledge one another. It is also important as a thank you if someone pulls over to let you pass, or if you have pulled over to let someone in a tractor or a big machine pass by in a tight situation. The salute from someone driving is often just the index finger raised up from the steering wheel. It might be four fingers raised up from the steering wheel, but the thumb and the palms stay on the wheel. One man always points his index finger with his whole hand in the air. I used to think his finger pointing at me from his clenched fist, fist was like a gun. But then I realized that if he'd been making a gun sort of sign, his thumb would have been raised. This directed finger is just his way of saying hello. Very few people wave their entire hand, but it does happen. A quick nod or a shake of the head is another form of salute. This nod is not a full nod. It is a very abrupt move, more like a nervous tick. Not everyone can pull off this quick nod. Sometimes when I'm alone, I practice it. <laughs> but it is not easy. When I'm walking, I raise my hand to every passing car. Sometimes I do not even look up, but I never fail to wave. If I salute every single time I pass someone, then I cannot be guilty of failing to salute which is considered rude. There are never that many cars nor people to pass, so it is not a big thing. Not doing it is a big thing. <laughs> the Polish shops in the area seem to move about a lot. I'm not sure if this is about short-term leases, but sometimes there are three or four of them in Clonmel, and then for a while there'll be only one. Polish and Lithuanians like to have their own foods. There's a big business importing these things. They seem to carry everything from magazines to meats and biscuits to salt. Practically everything is being imported so that home does not seem so far away. One shop that has lasted for quite a long time, uh, has quite, lasted for quite a long time already, is just outside the West Gate in Irish Town. It is called Chance, or Change. I am never sure which name is correct. The letters are hand-painted on the wall above the windows on both sides of the corner location. The letters are about 15 inches high, painted in dark red with a black shadow outline. I often intend to go in to ask what the name really is, but I have decided for myself that it is Change. The shop used to be an equestrian supply shop, and its windows were full of saddles and boots and horse feeds. Later, it became a bridal shop, with windows full of fluffy white dresses and various bits of wedding paraphernalia. I liked that it had gone from bridal to bridal. <laughs> that is enough reason for me to call it change. <laughs> He is like the head cut off his father. <laughs> that is what I was told today when I commented on the baby boy. I said he looked a lot like his dad. This was a much stronger way of saying <laughs> 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 So 
Jelly told me her own method for rescuing the birds that careen into windows at speed and knock themselves out. She keeps a large pot of mint growing near to the house. Many people grow mint in a pot to keep it under control. Delhi does not keep the mint in a pot to stop the mint from growing rampantly all over her garden. She thinks of her pot of mint as a small hospital. If a bird is found unconscious, it gets rested right in the middle of the pot so that it is surrounded by mint. She is certain that the smell works to revive and give strength to the stunned bird. Delhi says it is a rare day when a day's bird is still laid out among the mint when she returns for a look. If a bird has not moved, the bird is dead. She claims the mint always revives those who can be revived. Delhi is short for Adele. The sounds are in there. It is a nickname which is understandable. Delhi has a friend named Betty. Betty is short for Gwendolyn. <laughs> that makes less sense. <laughs> Sometimes I spend so long listening to the Irish language radio that I forget that I do not understand it. <laughs> I cannot tell anyone what I've heard, but I feel certain that I have understood. <laughs> Michael grew up in Clonmel. He said you could always tell when someone had received the American parcel. They would be walking down the street wearing clothes that no one else was wearing. You would know that the clothing came from one of those parcels sent by well-meaning relatives from America, even if you did not actually know the person. The clothes looked different, and they looked new, even if they were not exactly new. If you saw someone in a pair of check trousers, they had to have come from an American parcel. <laughs> Check trousers were a dead giveaway. <laughs> Anytime someone walked out in new clothes, he or she would be asked if the American parcel had arrived. <laughs> in one way, it was a joke, and in one way, it was just showing that nothing happened without others taking note. If you were in a family who received an American parcel, you wore the clothes, but it did not mean that you liked them. Receiving the clothes was one kind of announcement. Wearing them was another. <laughs> the more seed I put out for the wild birds, the more the birds come. The amount of nuts and seed I need every week grows and grows. Tommy is scornful. He, Tommy is a bit disgusted. He tells me that it's a bad idea to begin feeding birds because they will never, never stop eating. He says you can feed them as much as you want and you will never get anything back. He says I should only feed the kind of birds that I might want to eat myself. He said if you're going to feed animals, you should only do so if you're going to get something in return. I was stopped going through the security line at Cork Airport. The security woman took me and my bag aside. Before opening it, she said, you are carrying coffee in a tin. I said, no, no, I have tea. I have two tins of Campbell's Perfect Tea. I had been a little worried that the security people might consider the metal tins to be potential weapons. I started to babble a bit, and I said that I like to take 
Campbell's tea as a gift because I love the big yellow tins and because people love to receive them. I forgot that I was in Cork. The woman was not worried about the metal and the possibility of it being bent or shaped into a knife or a weapon once I was on the plane. She did not care about the tins. She was disgusted that I was not taking Barry's tea. <laughs> Barry's tea is the only tea to buy or to drink if you live in Cork. Barry's tea is a Cork product. It is a Cork institution. The Barry family are from Cork. They still live in Cork. They donate generously to all things Cork. Barry's tea is synonymous with Cork. I worried that she was going to confiscate my family's teeth. <laughs> she made me wait around for quite a while. She finally let me and the tea go, but she did not want to. <laughs> One day last week, we drove up into the mountains at five o'clock. It was too cold to stay up there for long, but the late light was beautiful. We walked for about 40 minutes before the sharp wind defeated us. We stopped in at Rose's for a quick drink on the way home. The bar smelled terrible. We immediately started looking at the floor as it smelled like something rotten from a farmyard had come in on the bottom of someone's boots. We couldn't see anything on the floor, so we figured it must be on someone's trousers. There were only five men in the bar. Perhaps someone had been spreading slurry all day and had stopped for a drink before going home to change his clothes. We drank up quickly and we did not stay for another. Today, I met Peter Ryan on the road. He had just come up from Rose's. She had asked him to stop in before the bar was open and before the fire was lit in order to check out the smoking of her chimney and wood stove. She did not mention a bad smell. What Peter found was a dead jackdaw. The jackdaw had squished into the chimney in a nearly impossible position. He could not figure out how the bird could have squeezed herself in and out of the very small available space, as many times as would have been needed to build a nest and then to sit on the nest and lay the eggs. Peter said the nest was made of all kinds of stuff beer mats, cigarette ends, string, rags, <laughs> as well as the usual plant material. The jackdaw had been sitting on eight eggs. The eight eggs were now stuck to the body of the dead jackdaw, and the whole mess was out in the skip outside the bar for anyone to see. Every single person who came in for a drink rushed out to have a look at it. Two nights and a lot of daylight hours of solid, lashing rain. The ground is sodden, the puddles are enormous. Breeder and I managed a rapid walk around through fields and onto the road without needing rain jackets this morning. We met Pa and Peggy at the entrance to one of their fields. Immediately, the conversation became a discussion about the rain and about the number of shali kabuki seen. They all explained and commented as to how they were seeing vast numbers of shalikabukis and in places where they had never before seen a shalikabuki. I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> I had to interrupt to ask. Shalikabukis are the little snails with yellow stripy shells 
which I had noticed were quite plentiful after rain, but I never knew that they had a special name. It must be a word from the Irish, so I will have to find out. No doubt my phonetic spelling leaves it to be desired, but even misspelled, it is a fine word. I bought a half-sliced pan, or a half-pan sliced. I can never remember which way to speak about this bread. It is sliced bread available as a half-loaf. I do not like this bread, and I do not buy it often. But some days, and in some shops, it is the only bread to buy. The reason I mentioned it is that when I opened the package to take out a slice of bread, the first thing I saw was a piece of cardboard in the shape of a piece of bread. <laughs> it had rounded bottom corners, and the top was rounded. The cardboard had one shiny side and one rough side. The cardboard was white, and the bread was brown. The cardboard was not heavy. It was like shirt cardboard. It was not strong enough to protect the bread if something heavy fell on top of it. Nor were there two pieces of card, one at each end. I still have no idea what function the shaped piece of card had for the half loaf of bread. Okay, so. Pod had kept waking up to the sounds of scratching. It was early in the morning. It was just coming light. The manic sounds of the dawn chorus were loud. The scratching woke him up, and as a result of being awake, he lay in his bed and enjoyed the bird song. He had no doubt the scratching sound was mice in the walls. Later that day, he put out mouse, tra mouse traps me, and a little bit of poison. He knew it was just a matter of time before the mice were silenced. A week passed and the scratching continued. Maybe the scratching got worse. He was woken up every morning. Listening to the morning bird song had been a pleasure, but now it was annoying. He was feeling defeated by the mice. Jimmy stopped by one day, and they talked about things. The subject of the mice came up. Jimmy told Potty that his problem was not mice, but crows. The two men went outside and looked up at the steep pitch of the roof. Jimmy pointed to the bits of moss growing on the slates and in between the slates. He said the crows were eating bugs and other little things that grow and live in the moss. The scratching potty was hearing was their claws trying to gain purchase while slipping and sliding on the roof. Jimmy told him that unless he cleaned out the moss, he wouldn't get rid of the crows. Jimmy reminded him that the same thing happened when they were children in their father's house. Potty told me all of this when we met on the road. I was on foot and he was speaking out of his open car window. He was pleased to have a solution for the scratching sound but he was irritated that it had to be his own brother who put him straight. <laughs> Both brothers are well into their 70s, but they may maintain a competitive kind of relationship. Jimmy was older, and he had always known better. He would always be older, and he seemed to always be the one in the know. It is getting late for a change. <laughs> When I use the word abroad, I'm thinking of faraway places. I'm thinking of a place usually overseas. I'm thinking of a foreign place. Here, the expression is used freely to describe someone being out and about. 
A farmer might be abroad in the field, or someone might be abroad in the yard. They might just be abroad, which suggests they are somewhere other than at home, but definitely not overseas. <laughs> if someone is abroad, they will return home for their dinner. <laughs> an old man at the market gathered an audience around him. He did not do it intentionally. He was walking toward Jim and Keith's vegetable stall when Jim called out to him to ask how his tomatoes were this year. The old man walked closer. He was using a stick for balance, so his progress was not fast. He wore voluminous trousers held up with blue braces. His shirt was white and ironed, and he was wearing a tie. When he got over to the stall, the man began to talk about his astonishing tomato bush. It had started from a little potted plant. He said he had bought it for a few pence. The small plant had been replanted into a big bucket, which he filled halfway with farmyard. All of his tomato plants were doing well this year, but this one had become an enormous bush, and it was covered with hundreds of small tomatoes. They were not ripe yet ripe, so he was waiting for some sun to finish them off. Several people had stopped to listen to him discussing his tomatoes. Each time a new person stopped, Jim included them in the conversation by announcing that the man was growing his tomato out of doors. We have all tried to grow tomatoes out of doors. Most people just give up. If you do not have a polytunnel or a greenhouse or a good glassed-in porch, it is too hard to grow tomatoes outdoors. The weather is unpredictable, and it is depressing to work hard at plants that always let you down. Each time a new person joined the little circle around the old man, the murmuring about his tomatoes being grown outdoors increased. Everyone was full of respect, and maybe envy. Each time a new person joined the little circle, the man began his story again at the beginning telling about the little plant, which only cost him a few pence. I was fascinated by the term farmyard, which he reused each time he explained his methods. He never said manure, nor even well-rotted farmyard manure. He called it farmyard, and we all knew just what he meant. extraordinary amount of noise and high contrast from the tearing of grass, which is the sound of the cows in the near field. The sound of cows pulling grass is quiet. It is almost a mumble in comparison to this bird chatter. I should be calling this the dawn chorus, but it is too raucous for a chorus. <laughs> if we are having tea with someone and the conversation is going along nicely, we might be offered a hot drop. A hot drop is that extra bit of hot tea added into a cup which is not yet empty. A hot drop extends the cup of tea and it keeps the visit going a little bit longer. We stopped in at the bar again. Uh, Rose had been waiting to give me 58 euro. She had been saving it in glass on a high shelf until I next came in. I had won the little lottery which the pub does every week. 
it is predicated on the bonus number for the big national lottery. We do not usually buy chances on this, but someone had convinced us to participate because they were lacking enough numbers that week. If they did not get enough numbers, there would be a very small prize for anyone to win. The chart with the numbers is ruled out on a piece of cardboard. The cardboard is cut from the inside of a cereal box. It has to be drawn on cardboard rather than paper because it gets passed around a lot for a week. Some people spend a long time deciding which number they will choose. The paper would just get too ratty. A name is written in the little box beside the chosen number. My winning number was two. <laughs> the woman who died is not a woman I know, nor do I know her family. They all moved away some years ago, and she herself has been in a home for 12 years now. Two women were discussing her. They were fondly remembering that her specialty had been pricing the cakes for the bake sale. A man drove up to the shop. He rolled down the window on the passenger side of his car. I was just entering the shop when he shouted to me from the driver's seat. He told me to send someone out to him. He was a large and heavy man, and he was not young. He had no intention of getting out of his car. The girl who was at the counter went outside. He shouted across the car seat that he wanted some bird nuts. She asked him how many he wanted. He said he needed a bucket full, but he had forgotten to bring his bucket. He sent her back indoors to find out how much the nuts would cost. The girl came out and gave him the price per kilo. He said he did not remember how many kilos his bucket held, and he did not remember how much he usually paid, so he did not know how many kilos to ask for. He shouted that he wanted the same amount of nuts as he always got. He was cross with the girl for not knowing how much he had bought last time, and the time before that. When I left, she was still shivering in the cold at the open window of his car, discussing how best to approximate his normal bucket of bird nuts. <laughs> Someone might say, I was watering the flowers. Marea, Marea. Yes, that's it. What they really mean is, I was watering the flowers, but I was not watering the flowers because they needed to be watered. Saying marea is like saying as if, or supposedly. Watering the flowers might just be an excuse for keeping an eye on some activity next door or maybe down the road. <laughs> this particular meaning of the word suggests that it is a way to admit to being nosy. I do not think I can incorporate this expression into my daily conversation. Few Irish words sit easily in my mouth, but I'm quite pleased to sort of know what it means. I'm glad to be able to listen for it. When I next hear it said, I will know that it's a kind of code, and I will feel included. <laughs> Thank you.